So just before we start, I'm going to pray for us, if that's okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. As we open up the book of Job together this morning, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to understand, reflect, and apply all that we read. We ask, Holy Spirit, for you to be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So I'd just like to welcome you this morning to part three of our Faith in the Dark series where we have been looking at suffering in the life of a man called Job. Now in the book of Job, we see vividly, don't we, a man on a path of suffering. And if you, anyone here, anyone listening online, has ever been on that path of suffering, you know it's not an easy one. And there may even be people here today that are in the midst of that path. And we acknowledge how difficult it is when we're trying to navigate that path. Job's suffering, it burst upon him wave after wave, without explanation and without mitigation. Job lost his vast fortune. He lost all of his children in one disastrous night. He lost his health. He lost the sympathy of his wife. He lost his reputation. His friends came to sympathize, but they ended up staying on to sermonize. Poor Job. He wrung his hands, he wept, he prayed, he argued, he challenged God, but there was no explanation. But unlike Job, we've got the scriptures we've got the Bible, and we can read in chapters one and two some stuff that Job didn't know that had gone on. And in chapters one and two, we see um, God's description of Job, and we also see a conversation between Almighty God and Satan. So I just wanna just read a couple of verses from Job, uh, Job chapter one, and this will be on the screen. Job chapter one, verse eight. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And then in verse 11 of the same chapter, we hear Satan saying these words to the Lord. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And in chapters three to 31, Job's three friends come to comfort him. And they do this through a series of lengthy speeches which have a real accusatory tone about them. They believe that Job was suffering because he had done something wrong. And their message seemed to focus on Job trying to identify what this hidden sin was and to repent of it. Job is under intense scrutiny in the book of Job. In the face of this simplistic, ethical onslaught of his three friends, Job articulates a really solid, sound defense of his innocence. And in the end, Job ends up calling them miserable comforters. 
who have given him no comfort at all. And I imagine when we get to chapter 31, Job is absolutely tired, worn out with defending himself. And chapter 31 closes with this statement. The words of Job are ended. Now you would think that the writer was indicating that the book of Job had ended. And like here, it's quite quiet, you can almost hear a pin drop. And it's as if everybody is waiting with bated breath for Almighty God to answer or for Almighty God to say something. But not yet. Instead, bursting onto the scene is a spirit-filled young man called Elihu, and he is a descendant of the patriarch Abraham. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. We've called the sermon this morning, Rebuked in Suffering. So we're going to read quite a lot of scriptures in a minute, and you will find them on page 533 of the Church Bible. We're going to read from Job 32, verses 6 to 9, and go straight in to chapter 33, verses 1 to 33. Okay. I am young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom, but it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty that gives them understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right, but now, Job, Listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I am about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me then, if you can. Stand up and argue your case before me. I am the same as you in God's sight. I too am a piece of clay. No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy on you. But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure, I have done no wrong. I am clean and free from sin, yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles, he keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, in this you are not right, for God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds. He may speak in their ears, and terrify them with warnings, to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones, so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing and their bones, once hidden, now stick out. They draw near to the pit 
and their life to the messengers of death. Yet if there is an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright, and he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's face and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being. And they will go to others and say, I have sinned. I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit, and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. God does all these things to a person, twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. Pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak up, for I want to vindicate you. But if not, then listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Elihu, although not mentioned any earlier, has been sitting among the group uh, listening to Job and his three friends. And from his speeches in the book of Job, Elihu's speeches take up six whole chapters. And it appears that Elihu has been listening to the discourse between Job and his three friends. And Elihu, if you imagine, they've all just sat round outside, and Elihu's just amongst them. He's young, so he probably maybe stood back a bit where the older people were maybe in front. And he has literally been listening for however long all these speeches have been going on. And he has weighed up everything that he has heard. And what he has heard has made him angry. Elihu is angry with the three friends because they assume that God is punishing Job for some hidden sin in his life. Elihu is also angry with Job because of Job's self-righteousness. And Elihu goes on to present a summary of Job's contention against God. And that's in verses eight to 12, and I'm just gonna read it again. But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin, yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles and he keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, in this you are not right, for God is greater than any mortal. So Job is saying that he's pure. He's done no wrong. He's clean. He's free from sin. In actual fact, Job declares himself to be completely innocent. You see, Job is righteous in his own eyes. Now, Elihu isn't disputing any of that. His problem with Job is the way he has gone about that declaration of his innocence, there in the presence of all the people sitting around. Job says that God has found fault with him that God sees him as his enemy. 
and has put his feet in shackles. So Job is basically saying, well, I'm innocent. Therefore, God, you're unfair. And by implication, Job is saying, well, actually, I'm right. So therefore, God, you must be wrong. Job is actually judging the judge of the universe, making the biggest error that you know, we can all make from time to time. Job has forgotten that almighty God is the potter and he is the clay, as Elihu reminded him in verse six. And this all angers Elihu, and he tells Job to his face, you are not right. God is greater than any man. Now, I'm not sure what you think about Elihu's words, but they do seem harsh, quite severe. Remember, Elihu is speaking to a man who is sitting in the dirt. That's his posture. That's where Job is as Elihu is talking to him. Job is a man who has lost everything, every single thing. And not only that, as he's sitting in the dirt, his body is covered with painful sores from the top of his head right through to the soles of his feet. He is a broken and crushed individual, but yet Elihu speaks to him in this way. But when we read to the end of the book of Job, we find that Elihu is the only friend not rebuked by Almighty God, suggesting to me that there is something that we can learn from Elihu. But before we learn from Elihu, I just want to take a brief interlude at this stage, so just hold that thought for a minute. Now, if you're anything like me when you read the scriptures, I'm always trying to understand it deeply, trying to put myself there, what was it like, and all of those things. The thing that hits me really, really intensely from the book of Job is I wonder what Job's life was like before all these calamities came upon him. Yeah, that's what I wanted to know. And in the Bible, in, one of, in chapter 29, it tells us exactly what Job's life was like. And this is what Job says about the good old days. And I'll just give you a little snapshot of what Job says his life was like. When I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside, and the old men rose to their feet. Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. People listened to me expectantly, waiting for my counsel. They waited for me as for showers and drank in my words like the spring rain. When I smiled at them, they could scarcely believe it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and I sat as their chief. I dwelt as a king among his troops. Job was revered by everyone. Now as I was thinking about Job's life, I imagined Job's life to be very much like this glass container of water here. It's clear, it's clean, and it's pure. And 
first, you know, when Job's trials come upon him, I'm just going to take the lid off of this, it was as if the trials came and sort of just, you know, stirred up his life a bit, the different things one by one coming upon him, just stirring the calm, still water a bit. And then as things sort of went on, things got worse for Job, his life started to maybe shake a little bit more, a bit more vicious. And then things got really bad, didn't they? And his life just became really, really turbulent. That's how I imagine the life of Job. And I believe, and this is just my opinion, that it was in Job's great suffering that Job has been driven to say things about Almighty God that were not right. Job's attitude as things got worse He became like this person, I suppose, who believed in his own rightness and the rightness of his own thoughts and his own opinions. And in his great suffering, Job was quite disrespectful to Almighty God. Now, let's not forget that Job called, you know, God called Job the most righteous person in the land. And yes, he was the most righteous person in the land. But Job was not sinlessly perfect. Now, I think that as things got worse for Job, just turn this lid off, like a sediment, if you like, that was in his heart, maybe, and I'm going to call that out, a sediment of pride was in his heart. And as things started to get worse for him, this kind of this sediment maybe started to cloud, maybe, the purity of his life. You know, maybe it was hidden deep down in his heart and it was only when the trials and the tribulation sort of came upon him that this started to cloud the purity of his life somehow when it was stirred up by the great suffering that he was experiencing. And there can be a sediment of pride in the holiest of people, including me, and I acknowledge it. And pride is a really great sin, I'm sure, as we all appreciate, against Almighty God. And at the end of the story in the book of Job, we see Job repenting. And we too have to repent of that great sin of pride. As we've read, Elihu thinks that Job is wrong in some of what he's been saying. And I'm just going to look now at verses 14 to 19 in Elihu's monologue. And he gives his understanding, his understanding of why the righteous suffer. And he makes mention in his dialogue about the residue of pride, much like the sediment in this water. So Elihu describes the way that God speaks to man by his word and by suffering. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds. Or he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from going down to the pit and for their lives perishing by the sword. Or the Lord, it says in the scriptures, may humble someone on a bed of pain. So Elihu puts dreams, visions, and the pain of sickness side by side as ways that God speaks to man for his good. 
Elihu tells us that God's purpose for doing this is to turn people from wrongdoing, to keep people from pride, and to keep them safe and turn their life away from the pit. In other words, God's purpose for the righteous is not to punish them, but to save them. To save all of us from any kind of contemplated evil deeds and from pride and ultimately from death. Now Elihu, as we read on in the scriptures there, does not picture God as an angry judge, but as a redeemer, a savior, a rescuer, and a doctor. And the pain that God may cause is, not, is, is more like the surgeon's knife rather than the executioner's whip, I'll put it that way. So what can we learn from Elihu's rebuke of Job? This is what I think we learn. Firstly, the righteous are, are far from being sinless perfection. We have a lot of our old nature still left in us. And if you're anything like me, from time to time, our sinful behavior breaks out. Sometimes we can't stop it. As it did when Job, uh, Job accused Job, Job accused God, it's like a tongue twister, of being his enemy. And secondly, the righteous do suffer. Suffering is not a punishment for sin, but a refinement of our righteousness. Suffering can awaken our ears to new dimensions of God's reality and new depths of our own imperfection and need. Suffering, it can actually deepen our faith and our godliness. Suffering of the righteous is not the fire of destruction, but the fire that refines the gold of our goodness. And thirdly, the suffering of God's people is not the result of God's enmity, but the result of God's love. And could it be, I don't know, I won't know this side of heaven, but could it be that the lesson that we learn from the book of Job is that suffering is not dispensed willy-nilly amongst God's people. Could it be that it's a portion to us as individually designed, expert therapy by the loving hand of our great physician? And its aim is that our faith might be refined, our holiness might be enlarged, our soul might be saved, and our God he might be glorified. Could it be? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And we thank you that you meet us in the depths of our pain and our suffering. We thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. Help us to always remember that our days are held in your hands and orchestrated by your wisdom. May we live continually in your presence, surrounded by your everlasting love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.